Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, attorney Clark Neely discusses civil asset forfeiture. Andrew Grossman talks about affirmative action in the courts. Jim Harper discusses the ongoing problem of national ID. And Terrence Keeley talks about government funding of science. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As of this recording, we are just shy now of the 40th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Buckley v. Vallejo. It has a, uh, a tie to the Cato Institute because Cato founder and now President Emeritus Ed Crane was among the original plaintiffs before the case got to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm joined now by the president of the Center for Competitive Politics, David Keating, and John Samples, uh, vice president here at the Cato Institute to talk about that case. John, of course, is also author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. And we're talking, of course, about Buckley v. Vallejo, uh, one of the most uh, landmark cases in campaign finance and freedom of speech. So I, I think before we get into the, the substance of the case, gentlemen, I'd like to start with what system did we have before the laws that were at issue in Buckley v. Vallejo? Basically, we had nothing. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I mean, there were laws on the books. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't enforced. So essentially, we had no restrictions on speech during a, a campaign for a federal office. And actually, it worked quite well. If you look back at our country uh, up until that time, uh, many, many changes were made. Many social changes were made. Many important laws were passed. And this was uh, from a system that was essentially completely unregulated. And, and just as an example, and it's an example I know that uh, I, I, I love to point to, uh, is the election of 1968 for president where you have Eugene McCarthy who sort of just shows up out of nowhere with massive contributions from a few people and essentially helps chase Lyndon Johnson out of office. That's exactly what happened. And in fact, uh, McCarthy was one of the plaintiffs in the Buckley case because he believed that if the contribution limits were upheld by the court, it would have made it impossible uh, for another candidate like him to mount an insurgent campaign uh, against a sitting president or really many other incumbents. Uh, I think it's worth quickly revisiting what happened in that race. Uh, McCarthy decided to announce his campaign in the late fall. I, was, I believe it was in October or November against the sitting president. Well, you think of the current election cycle that we're in now. Uh, people have been running since <laughs> basically a year ago. Yet M McCarthy declared very late in the process. The New Hampshire primary was almost as early as it is today. And basically he couldn't have possibly uh, run a campaign starting up that late against a very powerful incumbent president, but there were no contribution limits. And he raised the equivalent of almost $10 million in today's money, but it wasn't for the whole country. He was going to put all his chits on New Hampshire, and that's what he did. And he spent the equivalent in today's dollars of $82 a vote. And even though he didn't beat LBJ, uh, the political perception was that he had done surprisingly well and LBJ pulled out of the race shortly thereafter. There's another side to this, which is the response of Congress to uh, both McCarthy and I think the George Wallace uh, candidacy of 1968. Uh, we forget now because George Wallace was shot in 72 and his campaigning came to an end. But Wallace was considered a very serious candidate in 1968, one who could win electoral votes. Uh, and his campaign, too, was uh, fairly successful and it didn't turn out to be a third party that mattered, but still. Uh, so what you got in 1969 and afterwards initially, remember both McCarthy and Wallace, uh, this was the early years of TV in uh, presidential elections. Both McCarthy and Wallace were seen as exploiting this new medium. So what you end up with initially 
is limitate spending limits on broadcast spending. Uh, and not only spending limits on broadcast spending, but spending by state so that there was for New Hampshire, for example, a very specific limit that would have made it, uh, Gene McCarthy happening again impossible. All right. So uh, flash forward just a little bit. We have the Watergate scandal. And um, about that same time as that is breaking, there are campaign finance regulations moving through Congress. But so what was driving those campaign finance regulations? Because to say it was Watergate may not have been totally accurate. Well, that's my point. I mean, if you look at the history, you see that uh, essentially you have a few uh, proposals of no great systematic uh, scope prior to 1968. Then you have this year of great turmoil and a president being driven from office, and you get a systematic controls on broadcast spending, and you get various kinds of things, 6970. You have to look before Watergate because once you do that, you realize that this is really a response to a kind of systematic uh, churning, a kind of uh, threats to the status quo. Watergate, uh, I think, comes in because John Gardner of Common Cause uh, was able to redefine Watergate not as an abuse of power or a threat coming from uh, the president and from government, but rather as a campaign finance scandal, which it was not. It was true that uh, there were violations of campaign finance laws, primarily getting money from corporations. But there was nothing novel about it. The laws already existed. You could have actually just enforced the laws. Gardner made it uh, in public view that a cam uh, the greatest campaign finance scandal of all and in the aftermath, with this, uh, these amendments uh, to, and the law itself were went through Congress rapidly, and it, they were not going to be vetoed by uh, Gerald Ford. Well, a key a key part of the uh, Federal Election Campaign Act was actually it was alluded to by John here, but basically it was limits on spending, not only by uh, candidates for federal office, but independent groups as well. The, as I recall, I'm, if I'm getting if I'm getting this wrong, John, chime in. But as I recall, it was a thousand dollar limit on independent expenditures, which, when you think about that, is mind-bogglingly small. Hmm. And another frightening part of this law, I mean, it's all I can say is thank God for the Buckley decision. It was a truly horrible law. Not only was there a limitation on expenditures that was absurdly low, just speaking about uh, candidacies. But the other part that was frightening was the definition of what was regulated. And when you looked at that definition, literally you couldn't understand what speech counted and what speech didn't count. And if that law had been upheld by the court, and I actually think there may be four justices on the Supreme Court now that would, if they were presented with the same question, would perhaps uphold parts of it that were struck down. Uh, I mean, we would have an incredibly bad situation for speech about our government. So limited expenditures. Now, that is, uh, I mean, if nothing else, if we can disagree about what constitutes speech, it's, it's hard to disagree that spending your own money to support your own idea, your own candidacy is not a core speech issue. Well, it wasn't just that. It was, it was a group of people if they got mm -hmm. together. If you had 2,000 people and they all put a dollar in – uh, an account to spend, uh, they were <laughs> spending more than twice the legal limit. And uh, the court you know, properly, uh, in almost uh, in our view, obviously, struck down that limit. But uh, I mean, you think about it, and this was something that was mm -hmm. uh, passed by Congress, signed into law. Uh, I don't recall what the newspaper editorials were during the day, but uh, if anything, that the newspaper's power and people like Donald Trump would be enhanced by such a law because people that had name ID or media access, uh, you know, would uh, be more powerful in this kind of environment. So let's talk about the plaintiffs in this case. It's it's uh, interesting because it's Eugene McCarthy, it's James Buckley, the American Civil Liberties Union, the American Conservative Union, the Peace and Freedom Party, and the Libertarian Party, among others, are the people who were were challenging. Uh, this law, what was what was the substance of that challenge? Well, the substance was that uh, they were violations of the First Amendment uh, and that 
there were other arguments about uh, some parts of it, not just freedom of speech. There was a freedom of association argument that actually the court, the procurium opinion, the opinion of the court, uh, noted and accepted. That has become much less of an argument over time, uh, probably to our detriment. Um, and so that was the core of the problem. It was a straight-up uh, political speech argument. And in regard to and response to, what really I think we have to think about is uh, from about 1970 onward to 74 was an attempt by Congress to systematically control uh, political activity in this country. You have to say it was a period also from the mid-60s onward in which Congress was uh, and the administration were systematically adding a lot of controls other other parts of the country too. So in that sense, it was fully in line with what was going on in Washington. You also have to look, I think, at the spending limits that they'd set out for congressional races. My recollection is it was something like seventy thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars for a congressional race, and I think part of the data that they studied was, uh, interestingly enough, every challenger that had spent less than seventy thousand dollars was unsuccessful. So that was a convenient choice of well, a spending limit for a campaign. Th- there's another aspect to this, too, the contribution limits uh, from that period. They, they, another form of spending, but that was part of the loss at, in Buckley. But still, the contribution limits themselves were allowed to go lower through inflation. They were never uh, uh, increased. Now, what would have happened with spending limits, too, is you would not have seen them increase or, or only grudgingly in very minimal ways. So you, you really – it had – what they had in place was a real clamping down on political activity that would have been very serious. Now, it's possible that there would have been so many runs around the law that there would have been, you know, non-direct resistance to it. Uh, The political scientist Bruce Cain says if you hadn't had Buckley versus Vallejo, what would have happened is Congress would have had to revisit the law in the late 70s or early 80s and made changes that might have been more workable. Uh, that's the path we didn't go through, and Congress was certainly very uh, happy with uh, the clamping down aspects. I I don't agree with Bruce Kane. I think if they had gotten away with it uh, to limit speech, they would have happily kept it that way. In fact, a lot of the speech that we see, uh, the regulations passed at the state level, usually come about because a candidate who – or an incumbent – has something happen in the last election they don't like. They got too much criticism or something and they come in and they're determined to do something about it so it doesn't happen again. And so I don't think Bruce Kane is right about that. All right. So let's talk about the holding of the court here. Uh, You've alluded to uh, some of those. The court upheld limits on contributions. They upheld uh, disclosure and reporting requirements. Uh, and they also upheld a system of government funding or subsidies, subsidies to certain political campaigns. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. The the uh, again, this may have been a connection to Watergate. Uh, it's an inter- one interesting thing about the presidential funding system, which was part of this law, which put limits on uh, well, basically had two aspects: a matching fund for the primary. And then for the general election period, a limitation. Uh, In my look back at that, I thought the most interesting part of that was you had, first of all, there's no public funding for Congress. And there hasn't been a serious public funding system passed for Congress in the last subsequent years, the last 40 40 years. Uh, That's part one. Part two is the, the if you look at the spending trends from 1960 onward from a partisan point of view and you just extend them into the future, it looked like Republicans were going to have a huge advantage by 1980 or so. So by equalizing spending during the general election period, you actually changed the trend and did a, you know, a real favor for Democratic uh, presidential candidates and a large Democratic majority in Congress did that. It's, I think the public uh, funding aspect, uh, you can say a lot about it, but one of the things it is is one of the smoking guns of partisanship in campaign finance regulation. Yeah, it's a, another illustration of what I just said. If they th- 
if they think something will benefit them, they will pass it. And uh, that's exactly what happened. I think one of the ironies, though, that has nothing to do with the decision is that President Barack Obama has effectively uh, killed public financing and presidential election campaigns simply because he proved, and almost all the serious candidates since, have agreed that you can raise more money and spend more money if you rely solely on private contributions rather than allow, uh, using the government grant. Okay, let's talk about what the court did not uphold. They uh, struck down limits on expenditures by candidates, uh, limits on independent expenditures. That's that $1,000 uh, limit, which I checked it. Is that you're correct on that? Um, and they struck down the system uh, by which members of Congress directly appointed FEC commissioners. Right. That was uh, the constitutional separation of powers, which was the other issue besides the First Amendment. And that got modified pretty quickly uh, in 1976. Uh, I think, you know, I've, one thing, way to think about this is because many people on the First Amendment side of this don't like the contribution limits. It's, you know, the contribution limits have been a problem uh, and so on. Uh, they clearly are a form of spending. It's hard to distinguish them from the argument about spending and so on. After all, you know, uh, candidates use contributions to turn it into speech. Uh, but I think you have to see the context. We have to remember that this decision was uh, made about a year and a half after Richard Nixon resigned. Uh, and that didn't have a lot to do with it, but still it was in that kind of atmosphere. You had major... Uh, it had been passed by a Congress and signed by a president. The Congress had one of the largest majorities uh, that the Democrats and liberals have had in this country. I think given that context, it would have been easy for a politicized Supreme Court to just throw up their hands and say, Congress has spoken. Uh, we're not going to talk back to them. The fact that you uh, got a good decision on the spending, that you got – Above all, the idea that only corruption or the prevention of corruption rather than uh, equality, equality was struck down as a rationale for government regulation of campaign finance. And in some ways, I think that is the most significant part of the decision. What did Buckley give us in terms of future uh, jurisprudence at, at the court? I'm thinking of McConnell, mm -hmm. um, Austin, uh, later – Citizens United? It made it a lot harder to do what people wanted to do. So the we, we can lament the idea of particularly, uh, you know, of the appearance of corruption being a rationale for government uh, regulation of speech. But the corruption rationale itself made it at least, diff, you know, it harder that they had to come up with a colorable or plausible kind of uh, idea and also you could limit the concept of corruption to quid pro quo exchanges. So I think it so, – so by the late uh, – by 1990 or so, you find the court, uh, people who want to uphold uh, essentially egalitarian uh, campaign finance, they have to push uh, equality into the corruption uh, – Bandwagon, that is to say, people speaking loudly by spending lots of money. This is a corruption of the minds of voters, or it's a corruption of the system, or something like that. And it becomes clear that you know, essentially, we're, we've moved on toward we're not using corruption in a normal sense of the term. And I think that's part of the reason that uh, Citizens United won out. I mean, overall, the Buckley decision, obviously. Uh, yeah. I just – I think back to it and you say, boy, we really dodged a bullet there in a sense. But rereading the decision, there's some things where the court seems to me surprisingly lazy in its analysis really. Um, and we're talking about the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And some of the things like they just sort of waved through. Um, yeah, OK. That sounds fine. <laughs> and, and they actually uh, – for example, the um, – the disclosure requirements, the thresholds for disclosure of uh, contributions. They, the court even admitted that, yes, reporting contributions of $10 or uh, $100 publicly, yes, that seems low. And then they don't really say anything more about it except that, well, we defer to Congress. And they even say, um, we can imagine that some people would not want to give money if they're, they're disclosed. And yet, 
virtually no analysis at all. And to the extent they did give any analysis, they seemed to say the uh, people that were against uh, disclosing contributions that small had to show the burden of proof that somehow their First Amendment rights were being violated. The same thing was true for contribution limits. They were saying, well, okay, uh, if you give the money to a candidate, you don't know what the candidate's going to speak on, uh, as if uh, as if no one had heard of the concept of earmarking. I, I could easily imagine a candidate saying, okay, I want to run this particular ad that talks about this particular issue, and the court didn't even discuss that at all. I want to focus on this other issue, which is um, equality with respect to speech. It's almost as if this law was meant to enshrine the idea that uh, you get units of speech. That is, if it's $1,000 that an independent group uh, can spend, that we want to give you this number of units and not more because we're concerned about the uh, wide uh, spectrum of ideas that might be available to people otherwise, rather than having certain messages drown out by uh, some other messages. Yeah, it's been one of the, uh, campaign finance. I know David, I think, will agree with this. Is uh, has a certain number of images that uh, one of them is about floodgates and floods, and the other is the person on the uh, truck with the megaphone and people having bigger megaphones and drowning out other people. There is a concern that uh, of domination. I think that that's the underlying idea that one group will dominate. But there's another thing about this, which is persistent narratives in campaign finance. And one of the persistent narratives is if you don't have regulation for equality or other reasons, uh, people who are wealthy will completely dominate the process and they will present one position. uh, And that position will be conservative Republicans or whatever you call it. Uh, You know, the history both under and uh, not with regulation uh, suggests that that's not true, but it doesn't seem to have any effect on the narrative. And the narrative remains uh, true and people accept it no matter what. It, it's also interesting because when people talk about super PACs and uh, thank goodness for super PACs being able to uh, spend uh, unlimited amounts of money promoting or opposing certain candidates. But the idea that uh, a super PAC is going to march lockstep with the agenda of a campaign or some independent group is going to march lockstep with the agenda of a campaign or even understand uh, the reasoning behind the campaign pronouncing this policy goal or this policy goal. Uh, It just seems, well, do you understand how campaigns work (laughs) or how elections function? There's another aspect of super PACs, I think, that's interesting in relation to Buckley and Senator uh, McCarthy and so on, uh, which is that um, the, we've agreed, and I think this is absolutely true, the campaign finance law itself was designed to respond to threats to the status quo, to incumbents, to the whole system that really first emerged in 68 and, and, and so on. But actually, the way the jurisprudence has worked out, and Buckley has some role in this, is that you've, you end up with a system in which contribution limits really uh, need not be uh, restrictive because you can always, uh, if you've given all you can give under a contribution limit, you can always go out in an independent way and spend more on the campaign, more, more speech, more political participation. But notice, it's interesting, that creates, can be seen as creating a kind of bias in the system. But it's amazing. It's a bias toward the outsider rather than the insider. So this whole thing, we've gone through this whole set of uh, decisions and fights and struggles over the period. We've gone from the efforts to try to uh, essentially preserve the status quo have, in fact, led to an outsider bias, which I find deliciously ironic. Yes, but it's something the... Uh the politicians can easily cure <laughs> on their own. Well, the ones who are, who are elected, obviously, they can simply change the law and increase the contribution limits. In fact, they have done that in Congress. The, something like 16 of the 38 states with contr- individual contribution limits have raised those substantially since the Citizens United decision. And that takes me back to another important part of the Buckley ruling that 
you know, you look at the, some of the foundational principles uh, decided in this ruling, and one is that independent expenditures separate from a campaign is not something Congress can regulate because it doesn't rise to the same concerns about corruption or the appearance of corruption of candidates or the government at whole. And that's a hugely important concept. The court has said that if you want to speak independently about the government to criticize the government, you can do that. But this all harkens back to the Buckley decision where they said that independent expenditures were protected speech. Yeah, it could have been so easy for them just to get throw their hands up and you know go with the flow of the mid-1970s. But I think what David's pointing to is in many ways they recognized that you know we have to have some area uh, that's bordered off that government can't reach. And that's vital to the existence of this uh, regime, this kind of liberal the liberality of America. And that you have to say, again, because things seem so different now. That would have been a product of the previous 30 years of liberals being able to be First Amendment advocates. They saw, they were able to see in this situation where they wouldn't necessarily, that the First Amendment was at stake. So I think that's actually a real achievement. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. John Samples, Vice President at the Cato Institute, author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, and David Keating, uh, President of the Center for Competitive Politics. You can learn more about campaign finance, the fallacies, and reform efforts at our website, cato.org. Civil asset forfeiture allows the police to seize property without convicting or often even charging anyone with a crime. It's an affront to property rights and due process. Clark Neely of the Institute for Justice talked about the problems of civil asset forfeiture at the Cato Institute's conference on policing held in December. Civil forfeiture had its origins in, uh, in uh, 15th or 16th century England when they used it to seize the ships and contraband belonging to people who were trying to run blockade or run the uh, uh, British uh, had a law that you could only uh, deliver goods to England or Britain in, uh, in uh, British flagged ships, and so other countries would have an incentive to try to get around those. And so you used uh, basically an old-time version of civil forfeiture to seize the contraband in the ship. Um, so this fiction that the property could be guilty of the crime made it across the Atlantic where it was used uh, during the colonial era here in America, and then it essentially went dormant. Until when? Well, until first prohibition, until the prohibition of alcohol in uh, 1919, and then suddenly you saw uh, the use of civil forfeiture, but nothing like on the scope we see it today. And it, once again, after the repeal of prohibition, it went dormant until when? Until the uh, advent of prohibition two, drug prohibition. And then civil forfeiture exploded. And what do I mean when I say exploded? Well, um, the Department of Justice maintains something called the Asset Forfeitures uh, Fund. In 1986, the annual uh, revenues or the amount, annual deposits of the DOJ's Asset Forfeitures Fund were $93.7 million. That's million with an M. In 2014, the last year for which figures were available, $4.5 billion. Um, if you look at the entire federal government, not just DOJ's Asset Forfeiture Fund, in 2001, the amount of deposits uh, of forfeitures for the entire federal government, $500 million. In 2014, $5 billion. Uh, forfeiture has exploded, and most of it is civil. We're not sure exactly how much. Why? Because the federal government doesn't break it out. DOJ tra keeps track of 1,300 different uh, bits of information about forfeiture. Not one of them involves the distinction between civil and criminal. We had to dig this information out of the records uh, through open records requests from DOJ. So they keep track of 1,300 different things. They have no idea how much of their forfeiture comes in the form of criminal versus civil. And it matters a lot, because with criminal forfeiture, lots of due process. With civil forfeiture, virtually no due process. So it matters tremendously, and DOJ has no idea. 
Another big problem is the ability of the federal government to distort local law enforcement priorities. I'll give you one example. Um, states that have moved uh, to decriminalize marijuana or outright legalize it, uh, there is still a federal law against the uh, distribution or even the possession of marijuana, and the federal government has said in many instances that it will continue to enforce federal law, even in jurisdictions uh, where it has been made uh, legal. We actually had a case in California where uh, we had a client who rented out a piece of commercial property to um, a medical marijuana uh, sales, sales front, and it was perfectly fine under state law. But the uh, city of Anaheim Police Department wanted to go after the guy anyway, even though it was perfectly legal as a matter of state law. So they went to the feds, and they invoked a policy called equitable sharing, where the federal government can come in, and simply by participating in the investigation, they can essentially federalize the forfeiture. So what they proposed to do, we were able to stop it in this instance. But what they do all the time is just have a little federal involvement um, in a forfeiture matter. The federal government will be the official seizing agency. And then they'll basically kick back up to 80% of the proceeds back to the local jurisdiction, again, even in states where it's a violation of explicit state policy. The federal government forfeiture program is being used to pervert uh, local preferences, and that's a huge problem. A couple other problems with civil forfeiture, um, there's a virtual absence of, of procedural due process. I can't catalog all the ways in which it is absent, but I will tell you this. About 90% of uh, federal uh, forfeitures are accomplished administratively, and what that means is no one bothered to challenge it. DOJ draws one conclusion, namely, we've got a really accurate uh, success rate. We're getting property from bad guys who know they shouldn't bother to challenge it. Uh, we tend to draw a different conclusion, which is that it is so difficult to challenge a civil forfeiture. And believe me, I've worked on these cases. The, the, the procedures are mind-numbingly complex. They make the, coke, the, the tax code look like child's play. Um, uh, that no matter how innocent you are, the idea that you can go out and hire a lawyer and simply get your property back is, is utterly fanciful. Uh, another problem, virtually no transparency. As I mentioned before, DOJ keeps track of 1,300 different uh, bits of information about its forfeitures. None of that per uh, pertains to whether it's criminal versus civil. Um, that extends also to local police departments. It is virtually impossible to find out how much money they're taking in and what they spend it on. And we've been trying to dig this information out of the federal government and local law enforcement agencies for over five years now. And it comes in in dribs and drabs. So one of the biggest problems with civil forfeiture is there's just nobody who has any idea of what its scope is and what the money is being spent on. None. Uh, every once in a while, something funny will pop up. Uh, there's a DA's office in Texas that used some of the civil forfeiture money to buy a margarita machine. Um, if that made them less effective at doing civil forfeiture, I guess maybe that was a good thing, net-net, I'm not sure. Um, there's a few problems um, uh, that I'll just touch on really quickly with um, moving in the direction of reform. One of the biggest problems is supporters of asset forfeiture uh, say and maybe even believe things that are just not true. So one thing they'll tell you is you have to have civil forfeiture, civil forfeiture and able to, to enable you to take down these drug kingpins. Well, first of all, if the guy's a kingpin, charge him and convict him. Shouldn't be too hard. He's a kingpin, right? Second, it's, it's statistically not supported. So in Philadelphia, for example, where we have a class action lawsuit going, the median amount of a cash forfeiture on the streets of Philadelphia is $134. I mean, I guess they have a different definition of kingpin than I do. Maybe I just missed something since I stopped watching Miami Vice in the 1980s, but I thought it was a bigger deal. Um, in Washington, D.C., it was even less. It was about 100 bucks. So that's the big time drug dealers running around Washington DC with 100 bucks in their pockets, but it's definitely being taken. Uh, another myth that supporters of civil forfeiture uh, tend to cling to, which I can tell you is, an, is absolutely false, is that there's a process for getting the property back. Actually, that part's true. There is a process. And it is completely rigged against the citizen. Uh, just to give you one example, the infamous courtroom 478 in Philadelphia is where you have to go to contest forfeitures when the police take your property. It's not a courtroom, actually, because you know why? There's no judge in courtroom 478, at least not until about the fifth or sixth time you show up. Um, when you show up the first time to contest a forfeiture, you meet with a prosecutor, and they essentially give you a schedule. And you have to come back four or five more times. And believe me, those are just hoops. And if you miss even one of those other appointments, then you default, and they take your property. Maybe the fifth or sixth time you actually get to go in front of a judge. But if you're one of these people who had 134 bucks taken, how many days can you really take off work to get your $134 back? And you think the, the, the Philadelphia D District Attorney's Office understands that dynamic? Oh, they understand that dynamic, trust me. Um, final point is um, they'll tell you that abuses are rare. How in the world would you know? How do you know they're rare? 
You hope they're rare. I get that you hope they're rare. But the point is, you have no idea whether they're rare. We know they happen. And I can't tell you what percentage of the time there are abuses, because I don't know either. And that's the problem. Nobody knows. But you have a, a, a process, civil forfeiture, that has perverse incentives, namely law enforcement gets to keep the proceeds, and virtually no due process. Affirmative action makes a return to the U.S. Supreme Court this term. Cato adjunct scholar Andrew Grossman practices appellate and constitutional litigation in the Washington office of Baker Hostetler. At the Cato Institute in December, Grossman talked about the importance of the case of Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin. In 2008, the year that Ms. Fisher applied, 81% of the freshmen at University of Texas Austin were admitted under Texas's top 10% law, which grants automatic admission to the top students in Texas high schools. That alone made UT Austin one of the most racially diverse campuses among elite public universities. Nonetheless, the university layered on top of that base a race-conscious admissions program. Its current justification for doing so was that the top 10% students lacked what the university calls qualitative diversity, or diversity within diversity. Now, UT never actually surveyed the relevant characteristics of minority students admitted under the top 10 law, but it still felt that they somehow lacked adequate diversity among themselves. Applicants who don't win automatic admission are shunted into UT's holistic review program. That program bases admissions on a combination of academics and personal achievement. As part of the process, an admissions reviewer assigns each applicant a personal achievement score, ranging from one to six, based on a laundry list of factors, including race. That score is indivisible. The university maintains that there is no possible way to single out the influence of any single factor. So there's no way to know whether or how much a given applicant's score was influenced by race. After the scores are assigned, the applicants are selected major by major based on grids that pit academic achievement against personal achievement, including race. So at the end, there's no way to know whether or how the use of race influenced any particular admissions decision. Now, if even this stripped-down summary sounds pretty convoluted, there's a reason for that. It is. The purpose, by all appearances, is to obfuscate. And that's a real problem for the university in court. Even putting aside whether UT can justify using race at all, given the enormous diversity is achieved through race-neutral means, its holistic review program is completely divorced from its rather specific diversity within diversity rationale. If one were trying to, to boost diversity within diversity, whatever exactly that may be, no sane person would adopt anything like UT's approach. To begin with, it's astonishingly arbitrary. Despite the enormous emphasis that, that officials place on racial considerations, the decisions of when to use race as a plus factor and how much weight to accord it are left entirely to application reviewers without any specific guidance or oversight. The idea presumably is that they know what they're looking for, if you know what I mean. A sane person, or at least a person acting in good faith, would place emphasis on transparency. UT has not. It would be difficult to design a more opaque program. Even UT has no way to oversee decisions regarding race because it has structured its plan so that those decisions cannot be disentangled from the consideration of other factors. Indeed, UT has gone to such lengths to obfuscate its use of race that it can't even show that its application readers aren't treating race as the defining feature of the applications that they review, which would amount to a forbidden quota system. Finally, a sane person would focus on results. But the results of UT's use of race are unmeasurable. UT cannot identify students admitted because of racial preferences, and it has no ability to identify their characteristics or ascertain the impact of racial preferences on diversity at any level. It doesn't know whether its program is working. It doesn't know whether its program could be improved in some respect. In Justice Kennedy's view, details matter, and the details here are a mess. No one from UT appears willing or able, and I won't speculate which, to explain exactly what it is that the school is doing with race behind closed doors. There's no way that this mess of a program passes muster with Justice Kennedy, unless he repudiates basically everything he's ever written about affirmative action. Suffice it to say, that's not likely to happen, particularly since this case reveals Justice Kennedy be something of a visionary. In his Grutter dissent, he warned that undue deference to schools would allow them to cite vague diversity interests as a pretext for the arbitrary use of race. And that's exactly what happened. And it's not just at UT. Many of the affirmative action programs administered in the wake of Grutter are similarly structured, using the language of holistic review to cloak arbitrary racial preferences. 
Some of these schools are seeking to hide the fact that the preferences they award are enormous. Others simply haven't been very precise in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and how they're going about it. They just know that they like preferences. And based on statistical analyses, it appears that some schools are using diversity as a cover for what are basically outright quota systems. All of those schools are going to be in serious trouble after Fisher. But to be fair, it's only partially their own fault. Blame the court, too. Ruder instituted the era, the era of don't ask, don't tell for affirmative action programs. But now, Justice Kennedy is asking, and he's asking serious questions. The result will be to throw the light on programs that have been operating almost entirely in darkness without any public oversight or accountability. Public universities will have to begin to explain what they've been doing all these years. And that honesty and openness will force major changes. Schools will have no choice but to shift from treating affirmative action as a first resort to using it as a last resort. The Real ID Act is supposed to add uniform Washington-led identification to all driver's licenses in the United States, but the feds have routinely delayed the penalties associated with not having a Real ID-compliant driver's license. Jim Harper, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, argued that it will be Congress and federal agencies that will pay the price if those penalties are implemented. He spoke on Capitol Hill in December. The merits of a national ID are very rarely discussed, uh, but obviously that's the essence. And I suppose one of the reasons why the Real ID Act and the national ID idea has a lot of currency is because people assume that it provides security uh, benefits that make it somewhat worth the cost. Um, obviously, identity is essential. It's, it's, think of it as sort of an economic and social glue. We use identification all the time uh, to recognize our loved ones, to communicate with people. It's, it's absolutely essential, and there's obviously no getting rid of identity. It works very well in common interactions in our ordinary day-to-day uh, -day society. Just to illustrate, um, and, and this may, may be why people uh, assume so readily that a national ID provides security, if I were to borrow your phone, um, you could be relatively confident of getting it back because you know my name, you know who I am, uh, you know where, where I work, uh, you could find me. You could uh, call my friends, you could call the police if you needed to get your phone back. Anticipating that, um, if I'm not just a nice guy, anticipating that, I'm gonna go ahead and give you your phone back because it's gonna be more hassle than it's worth because you'll come after me and get the phone. So knowing who I am means that I behave well with respect to you. That's the benefit of, of identification in day-to-day in -day interaction, and it works. So there's no, no denying that identity is beneficial. It's essential, in fact. But what if you're dealing with someone who we'll call a motivated attacker? It could be a criminal or a criminal syndicate. It could be a terrorist. It could be someone who lacks uh, impulse control. You don't get the same benefit from identification vis-a-vis -vis those people. Um, they may identify themselves to you directly and still do a bad thing to you, someone with impulse control, a terrorist. And indeed, on 911, the terrorists identified themselves accurately. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a myth that hangs out there that they used a lot of identity fraud in order to ply their trade or make their way through the country. They identified themselves accurately. They used minor identity frauds. I think in Virginia, a few of them claimed state residency when they'd been in the state less than five days, which was fraudulent, but it's one of the most minor frauds I could possibly think of. Identifying themselves accurately, they went ahead and, and uh, committed their, their dastardly deeds. Uh, other, other malefactors will try to defeat your identity system, so a, a criminal syndicate or something like that. And it's really not that hard to do, particularly in the example of terrorism, because there's sort of two ways to avoid uh, the security of an identity system. Uh, I call them logical avoidance and physical avoidance. Logical avoidance is getting the ID that's necessary to access whatever infrastructure is controlled by ID. So it's using the ID that's required. Getting an ID, ID if, it's, if, it, if, if, if you really need to, uh, getting a fake ID. It's really not that hard, and especially if you're in a, a motivated attacker, it's not at all hard to get the documents to put together an identity. And now there are definitely efforts to strengthen the, the, the license and make it harder to do that. But just how much are you going to expend of society's resources and the time and effort of every American 
to make it hard to get a fake ID so that uh, some bad actor can't get a fake ID. Because in addition to logical avoidance of an ID security system, there's physical avoidance. That's literally going someplace that's not controlled by identification. So if I am trying to, I'm sorry to always be talking about terrorist dangers, but they're one of the prime motivators for this. So if I am unable to access planes for some reason, I go to a shopping mall. We saw this tragically demonstrated in Paris. Um, they went to a place, they were obviously in places that it doesn't require identification to go there. And so they're able to do damage without regard to the fact that France is a national ID country. They have a national ID. It's optional, but customarily people carry their IDs with them at all times, and they're required by law to show ID uh, when they're asked for it by, by police or other judicial authorities. So here you've got un an unfortunate example where, where um, the existence of an ID system did not provide any, any of the kind of security that we'd want and that we'd expect from a national ID. Physical avoidance, simply going places where an ID is not required. So that's the that's the the, the security question, which is the which is the most important. Uh, I think that if uh, <coughs> there are privacy costs in addition to dollar costs that that make a national ID very concerning, but if it provided good security, if it was a solid security system, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say that we sh we shouldn't have such a thing. Uh, I'm very bought into the the standard of the Fourth Amendment, which is that that uh, people's uh, privacy is protected. Uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures, and if it is a reasonable security measure, uh, it's something that I would, would probably be willing to embrace. So I'm not just standing here saying no to a national ID despite all. I'm saying no to a national ID because it doesn't add up in terms of, in terms of cost and benefits. How science gets funded is deeply political. Government funding of science can drive research agendas in ways that can serve parochial interests over the public interest. Terence Keeley is a professor of clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom, where he served as vice chancellor until 2014. He's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. At a Chicago City seminar, Keeley talked about the problems inherent in government funding of science. The founding document for science funding in this country, the founding document for science policy in this country, was written, but not the one you're going to think of, also in 1776. It was written by Adam Smith. And he dedicates a tremendous amount of space to showing that it is a myth, because even then people propagated the myth, that it is a myth that governments need fund science. Science, he says, is not a public good. Science, he says, does not need public funding, and it is also a myth that you need basic science before you get applied or technological science. In fact, he says, if you look at the early Industrial Revolution, which is, of course, what he was involved in, it is obvious it's all the other way, that it's the technologists and the engineers and the people in business who are making the advances, and the universities are scrabbling to catch up and that every penny that government spends on science is wasted. Now, whether or not you agree with that, the fact is that in 1776, in this country, your founding fathers did agree with that. And so this country was created with the federal government not spending a penny on science. The first federal intervention in science comes thanks to another Englishman called Smithson, who dies, and who then leaves in his will, and I will quote from his will, to fund at Washington, under the name of the Smithsonian Institution, an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge amongst men. His half a million dollars, which was a lot of money in those days, arrives on these shores in 1838, but the act allowing the money to be spent doesn't get passed till 1846, eight years later. Why? Because there are so many people in Congress who think it's just wrong for the government to spend money on science, even if the money is coming from someone else. And some of the statements made 
in the Congress were remarkable. This, by the way, brings me to my first president out of order, because this is Andrew Johnson, and Andrew Johnson led the opposition in the House. He was then uh, a representative from Tennessee, and he led the opposition in the House, and he spoke very powerfully against accepting the money, although the really inflammatory statements were made in the Senate. And I shall just read a couple of statements that senators from South Carolina made in the Senate. William Preston said that this gift was too cheap, and every whippersnapper vagabond might think it proper to have his name distinguished in the same way if we accept this money from Smithson. John Calhoun from South Carolina said, it is beneath the dignity of the United States to receive presents of this kind from anyone. And then he became a bit more philosophical. We must look carefully at the extent of our power. This government is a trust established by the states with a specific capacity education not included. What are we to do with this money? There's no difficulty in that. It must be returned to the heirs. What particularly inflamed Andrew Johnson was that the money was then invested in bonds in Arkansas. Half the money was then lost. And as a consequence of that, Congress decided to make up the difference plus interest from taxpayers' money. And Johnson was furious. And if you read the biographies of Johnson, he's constantly denying for the rest of his career that he's a fixed enemy. That's the expression, a fixed enemy of the Smithsonian. But he is a fixed enemy of the Smithsonian because he never forgives them for A, having been an initial drain on the economy. But he then goes on to say, you mark my words, for the rest of its existence, the Smithsonian will continue to be a drain on the taxpayer. And indeed, he's right. You may not use the word drain, but today, the Smithsonian gets 70% of its income from the federal taxpayer and only 30% from its own resources. So my first of five presidents is Andrew Johnson, who could not be more opposed to the whole concept of the government funding science. What's interesting, by the way, just as a parallel, is the similar congressional opposition to the creation of the National Gallery of Art in, in the Mao in, in Washington. And when Andrew Mellon uh, proposed to give $15 million to build a building and $80 million worth of art, there was a real five-hour debate in the Senate with many, many congressmen and senators independently opposing it. I'll just quote one uh, speech from Congressman Wright Patman, who said, this, president, this precedent is a very bad one. If we allow Mellon the privilege, Hearst and Morgan will come in next with an offer just as attractive, i.e., we don't want philanthropy because they might crowd out uh, what the government is trying to do. So my first of five presidents totally opposed to the government funding of science, reflecting the culture of the day, is Johnson. The next government intervention in the funding of science comes with the land-grant colleges, the so-called Moral Act, but was originally a moral bill in 1859, which James Buchanan vetoed. And this is what he said. This bill will injuriously interfere with the existing colleges in the different states. Those colleges have proved to be great blessings to the people, but many of them are poor, and they sustain themselves with difficulty. The effect on them of creating an indefinite number of rival colleges sustained by the endowment of the federal government is not difficult to determine. So the Moral Act, or the Moral Bill, the land graph colleges, the idea was that the federal government would give huge tracts of land to the states, who we're talking about millions of acres, by the way, who would then sell the land and use the money to endow Texas A&M, agricultural and mechanical colleges in the states. And Buchanan says this is wrong for two very important reasons. First, as the quote here says, you're going to simply crowd out the private sector. Why should the government use taxpayers' resources to create institutions which will only have the effect of crowding out the private sector? It's a double negative whammy, one. But the other point he makes, which I haven't quoted here, but it's implied here when he talks about the poverty of the existing colleges. The problem with agriculture in America in 1859 was the problem of overproduction. The farmers were poor because they were producing too much food. So there was no profit in it for them. 
This is a perennial problem. We English had corn laws for hundreds of years because of the problem of trying to make profit out of agriculture. And Buchanan also said, what is the point of subsidizing education, agriculture, to a sector that's already producing too much food? And so for these two very good reasons, he vetoes it. They come in, of course, three years later, when Lincoln is your president. Um, and Lincoln, of course, as we all know, did not believe in free markets. He believed in a very dirigee state, him and Clay. Um, but the other, the other caveat he installed was that these colleges had to introduce a reserve officer training corps, so they had a double function. A, to educate farmers, and it wasn't really about educating farmers, it was about giving them degrees to raise their social standing. That was really what it was about. And also trying to persuade them to engage in more sustainable farming and less slash and burn because of this problem of productivity. But that's not the real thing. The real thing is you raise the social standing of farmers, they're more likely to support you in your civil war, and you, at the same time, create officer training corps. So that is the second government intervention, federal government, in, in, in science in this country. But it is not very big. And you get until a very fascinating natural experiment. You get us to the 1940s. Between 1776 and 1940, the federal government basically spends no money on science in this country. Yes, the Morrill Act gets through, but these are largely one-off payments. Thereafter, the colleges and the states take over the, the care of the colleges. What's interesting is that you become the richest country in the world under conditions of complete laissez-faire and the most technologically advanced. But then someone challenges Adam Smith, and it's Vannevar Bush, or Vannevar Bush, as he may be called, who in 1945 has a problem on his hands. He is ultimately in charge of government funding of science, which just takes off, of course, in 1940. Manhattan Project and all the other big defense projects. And he's got all these scientists that he's employing. And suddenly, there's a threat that they, may be, they become unemployed, or even worse, might have to go to industry and earn their money doing something useful for the economy. He is concerned <laughs> at all these scientists he's employing in Washington. So he writes a book called Science, the Endless Frontier. And what it says, very plainly, is it's very simple. He says, look, we won the war by investing in science and developing an atom bomb. We can do the same in peacetime. If we invest, the government invests in science, we can transform the economy, airplanes, whatever. And this is an argument that persuades Congress very successfully. And in 1947, Congress presents Truman with a bill to create something called the National Science Foundation. And Truman vetoes it. These are his words. The proposed National Science Foundation would be divorced from control by the people to such an extent that implies a distinct lack of faith in the democratic process. The National Science Foundation, the proposed National Science Foundation, was to be created on the model of what the scientists wanted. What happened was the legislators went to the scientists and said, we want to give you lots and lots of money. How would you like to receive it? And they said, well, we are prepared to accept it under various circumstances, one of which is we want complete control. We want this money to be distributed purely on the basis of peer review. And those scientists who say that other scientists are good, well, they're the ones who make the determination where the money should go. And the president of the National Science Foundation should be appointed by the scientists. Perhaps it should always be the president of the National Academy. Who knows? But it should be the scientists running the thing on their own terms. Truman had a very different vision. He agreed that we probably did need a National Science Foundation, though he wasn't sure about that, actually. But he certainly didn't believe that public money should just be given to scientists to spend as they wish. He wanted, in fact, scientists to become civil servants. He wanted them, rather like the 1930s, actually, he wanted the amount of money distributed to the states to be in proportion to their population. And he wanted, as I said, scientists to be largely employees. And so the scientists refused that. And when they offered what they wanted, Truman said no. And there it would have stayed, but for the Cold War. But the Cold War put such a pressure on the defense industries to come up with new R&D, that the demand for new scientists became very real, not for commercial or key economic reasons, but for reasons of defense. 
And so in the end, Truman was forced in 1950, the same year the National Security Council was created, for the same reasons, to pass an NSF. It was a compromise NSF, so he, remained the, he retained the power to appoint the director. But thereafter, it was peer-reviewed and the scientists running it along their own lines. Uh, but it was the war that persuaded Truman to change his mind. Was it a good idea? We come now to my fourth president, Eisenhower. In 1961, as you all know, he gave his famous military-industrial complex speech on his resignation, his retirement. He is very damning about the consequences of the government funding of science. This is what he says. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A dramatic expansion in basic and applied research may be suggested as the only way forward. But we must maintain balance between the private and public economies. The prospect of domination of all the nation's uh, scholars by federal employment, project allocation, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. The free university was historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, but a government research contract has become virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. What he says is this huge expansion of government funding for science is destroying the American university. The American university is no longer speaking truth unto power. It's saying to power, tell us what you want, Mr. Powerful Person, and we'll give you the science that you ask for. It is the prostitution of the American university and the loss of its love of freedom in exchange for government money that Eisenhower identifies in this most important speech as actually fully as threatening as the military-industrial complex. And actually, if you look at the space he dedicates to the corruption of universities by the government funding of science compared to the space he delegates to the military-industrial complex, he's obviously more concerned about that. And he considers it clearly, the words are unmistakable, to have been a historic mistake. And finally, I come to my last president, Lyndon Johnson. Because Lyndon Johnson was not a man who gave a damn about the independence of universities. However, in 1966, when he launched Medicare, these are the words he used as part of his speech. A great deal of basic research has been done, but I think the time has come to zero in on the targets by trying to get this knowledge fully applied. I have been participating in the appropriations for years. There are hundreds of millions of dollars, actually billions of dollars, but anyway, there are hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on laboratory research. Now, presidents, in my judgment, need to show more interest in the specific results of that research. I am going to show an interest in the results, whether or not we get any. Very important phrase, whether or not we get any. I'm going to show an interest in them. Johnson had picked up on the fact that the scientists had broken their promise. We were told in 1945 by Vannevar Bush that if there was this huge expansion of the NSF, the NIH, the whole thing of British and American science, there would be a boost to the economy. There would be more basic science, and therefore there'd be more applied science, and all sorts of wonderful things would happen. But Johnson amongst other things, had commissioned a project known as Project Hindsight. And he'd spent $10 million just on this little project, which is a lot of money for the project, because what Project Hindsight was, he asked a group of scholars to identify the major advances that had been made in defense research. He took that as a, I say to think, defense research in the years since the Second World War. And they'd identified 700, 700 technological advances that had been important to defense research in this country since the Second World War. And of those 700, just two were rooted in basic science. And of those two, they came from basic science that had been funded by the free market before the Second World War. Johnson had picked up on the very clear fact that the government funding of science had delivered neither economic growth nor technological growth, and he wanted to do something about it. Now, in fact, it could have been predicted and was predicted that the government funding of science in America would achieve precisely nothing because the historic examples were so very considerable. 
The two great economies of the last 200 years, as we all know, in the 19th century was the British economy and the 20th century was the American economy. They're the two great successes. The British economy was completely laissez-faire. We were, you got your ideas of laissez-faire in science from us, and we were utterly committed to laissez-faire in science. We just didn't fund science, period. Didn't fund it, end of story. Didn't stop us leading the world through the agricultural revolution. Didn't stop us leading the world through industrial revolution. Didn't stop us creating the steam engine, the steel industry, cotton. Didn't stop us producing scientists of the quality of Darwin or Kelvin or Maxwell or Dalton. I could go on with an amazing list of um, British technological and scientific advances, all funded under the free market, not a penny of government funding. But the same is true of the states. You remain equally free market until 1940. So the country that overtakes free market Britain is free market America. And yet you produce men of the quality of Edison or Tesla or the Wright brothers. Just here in Washington, you produce, um, in Chicago, sorry. <laughs> you produce scientists who win Nobel Prizes of the quality of Michelson or Millikan. You import people like Einstein who work at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, all funded, of course, privately. In fact, by 1940, 80% of all research and development, including pure science in America, is funded by the private sector. Of the remaining 20%, 10% is for agricultural research, which is a vote-winning tactic. There's no need for agricultural research. You're still producing more food than you know what to do with. Um, and the other 10% is for defense research. And I won't go into the economics of defense research, but, but defense research is only about a tenth as valuable as civil research for economic growth. I have no economic value whatsoever. So as late as 1940, you are producing an fantastic array of a pure and applied science, totally dependent, happily so, on the free market. The countries that fail even to converge on Britain, let alone overtake, are the countries that ignore Adam Smith. France and Germany particularly. By 1800, France and the German states, their governments are investing vastly in science. In fact, from Colbert in the middle of the 17th century, the French are investing in an array of scientific institutions. And they do produce good science, as it happens. But they don't get economic growth. In 1800, France and Germany enjoyed only 75% of the GDP per capita of Britain. By 1900, France and Germany enjoyed 75% of the GDP per capita of Britain. They've increased, as we'd increased, but they hadn't converged, let alone done what the Americans had done, not only converge, but overtake. The historic evidence is overwhelming. Economic leadership and scientific leadership goes to the countries where the government doesn't tax the people and allows the market freedom. In Understanding the Growth Slowdown, a new ebook edited by Cato scholar Brink Lindsay, leading economic scholars and academics examine the gathering evidence after the recession of 2008 that we are in the midst of a profound deep shift in long-term economic growth. The disappointing performance of the U.S. economy in recent years, the slowest post-recession expansion since World War II, may not be just a temporary setback after a downturn, but rather the new normal. You can download your copy today at cato.org store or at any online bookseller. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.